0: we are once again in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 the passage that we began last week is verses 15 through 18 so this is part 2 of our study of that passage and you'll remember that this passage mentions something interesting several things interesting but certainly it's interesting about the trumpet In particular, it's the trumpet of God, a trumpet that will be sounded in conjunction with the future moment when Jesus descends from heaven to gather up his people for a meeting in the air. This seizing, this snatching up of his people is commonly called the rapture, And as I've explained, that comes from the Latin translation of the verb that's found in this passage, translated caught up or seized, snatched up. Rapture comes from the Latin translation of that. But as we saw last time, as Jesus descends, other things happen. He will give a shout, this passage tells us. That means a command that all the bodies of believers who have died will be resurrected. So the trumpet that sounds is associated with that, the raising or waking up, if you will, of the dead bodies of believers. Now presently, as we know, the eternal souls of those who have died in Christ, they go to be in the Lord's presence at the time of their death, But at this resurrection, their bodies will be resurrected, glorified, changed, and rejoined to their souls. Well, there's a lot in that passage that's interesting, but the part of the passage that caught my attention in a special way is the part about that trumpet. As some of you know, the trumpet was my primary instrument when I was growing up. Middle school, high school, and even on into college. In fact, during those years when I was participating in Boy Scouts, because I played the trumpet, I was the obvious choice to be the troop bugler, bugler, which meant I had to learn to play taps. Almost every trumpet player learns to play taps. That's because it's played when it's time for everyone to go to sleep when we're at a Boy Scout campout. I also had to learn the tune Reveille. It's a little military song, the notes with which soldiers are called to a new day. I would play that in the mornings at the campouts to wake everybody up. They loved me for that. <laughs> so, reading about the trumpet that will blow at the rapture made me think about that tune, Reveille. Because at the rapture, the bodies of believers will be awakened, waken up, as it were. Not saying that's the tune it will play, but that's the idea. But of course, at the rapture, it's not just the dead in Christ who are involved in this event. Those believers alive at that moment will also be glorified as they are caught up into the air by Jesus and surrounded by clouds, the passage tells us. It's both groups together that will meet the Lord in the air, which means somewhere in the large interspace between earth and heaven. Now, this was important information for the Thessalonians. You'll remember, as we've learned, they were in great sorrow, grieving over their believing friends and relatives who had died. They were concerned that those who had died would miss the rapture or be in some sort of disadvantaged position when it comes to the rapture. So Paul wrote all this to correct their thinking. That was his purpose. And as I noted last week, we are breaking down this instruction on the rapture into four elements. We looked at number one last week, element number one, the validating authority. And that comes from verse 15. Paul says that what he was writing to them was by the word of the Lord. That phrase means this information was direct revelation from Christ to Paul. It was not information that he originated or created, it's from the Lord. That's what makes it authoritative, the validating authority. Element number two we looked at, the ordained order. There's an order of what's going to happen. I've already alluded to it, but I'll tell it to you again. Step number one, the dead will be raptured first. Verse 16 tells us that. The dead in Christ will rise first. Second step, the living will be raptured second. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But what happens then? Do they all just stay in that interspace between earth and heaven, hovering, so to speak, Or will Jesus merely seize believers, rapture believers as He's on His way to the earth, but then immediately they'll just turn around and come back down to the earth with Jesus, back to where they were? Sort of a quick up and down action? Well, some have formed a view that is influenced by a particular way the term meat, that word meat in the air, a particular way that term meat was used sometimes in the culture of Paul's day. That verb meat was used to describe the custom of a city sending out a delegation outside the city to receive, to meet and receive a dignitary who was on the way into the city, perhaps a political leader. Then once that reception, that meeting took place outside of the city, that delegation would return to the city from whence they were sent out. They would return to the city with that visiting dignitary. So because of the way that word was used sometimes in that culture, some feel that this technical force of the word means the same thing here in 1 Thessalonians. In other words, that at the rapture, believers will indeed go up to meet the Lord, the dignitary in this case, and then immediately return with Him, escorting Him as He continues His descent to earth, which is the official second coming of the Lord. However the characteristics of those receptions back in ancient times do not really correspond with what we find in our text here. When the resurrected and the living are caught away to meet the Lord, one difference is this. It's the fact that the time of this meeting, the time of this rapture is unknown. That was not true of a dignitary's visit to the city. The comparison breaks down, therefore, Also, we don't go out or advance out to meet a visitor on our own. This text says something different. At the rapture, we're snatched up. We're seized by the dignitary himself, the Lord. Moreover, there's just nothing in any text that suggests that Christ will be escorted back to earth immediately. So those facts remove this passage from that technical Hellenistic sense of that word meet. As the commentator Hebert writes, a meeting in the air is pointless unless the saints continue on to heaven with the Lord who has come out to meet them. And that is exactly what will happen, which brings us to the third element, number three. We've seen the validating authority, the ordained order, number three, the predestined result. The predestined result, verse 17 continues, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That emphatic adverb so or thus points then to the consequences of what's just been talked about, the catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air. That consequence is taking us back to heaven. That's where the Lord will descend from. That is where he will return to, but with all of us. And that does fit, as I've already mentioned in a previous message, that fits with what Christ said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says that His coming, this aspect of the parousia, this aspect of the coming will be for the purpose of taking His people to the heavenly mansions now being prepared for them. And notice something here, we will never leave His presence In fact, the order and emphasis of the original is this. It really says, and so always with the Lord we will be. The always part is emphasized. So wherever the Lord is, wherever the Lord goes, His glorified church will be with Him. And it's not going to be just a superficial companionship. It's going to be an intimate union. That's what we find with that little preposition with. That preposition indicates a unity with Jesus. We'll be eternally united with Him. And Paul doesn't discuss everything in this text, but then at God's appointed moment, yes, we will all come with Jesus at another aspect of the parousia, Another aspect of the coming, when he actually does come to the earth in power and glory to establish his earthly kingdom. So the point of all this is that the Thessalonians did not need to sorrow for their believing friends and loved ones who die before the rapture. All believers will be unitedly sharing the same destiny, the same predestined result. But again, Paul's concern in this text was not to explain all the details of eschatology to satisfy everybody's curiosity. His purpose was to console people, to console members of the church, as the final element does clarify. Number four, the encouraging intent. The encouraging intent. This paragraph concludes as it began on a pastoral note. Verse 18, Therefore... Comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another. You could translate it that way. And the point in this teaching about the rapture is captured in these words, that expression, these words. That means the teaching about the rapture. Those words, that teaching can bring a consoling, comforting, encouraging impact on those who are sorrowing over the loss of loved ones. It can bring them hope. so Paul bids them to actively use those words for that purpose to bring that kind of comfort and encouragement to each other and it's put in the present tense form here which means it should be their continuing duty to do that as it should be ours now that completes our study of the text so we can be dismissed and, and go or there's one additional issue that I could address. Let's briefly talk about the timing of all of this, the timing of the rapture, especially its relationship to what we refer to as the tribulation. If I don't do this, I'll get emails from you. <laughs> Why did you never talk about the timing? So here we go. This is a question that has evoked wide discussion, and there's no agreement concerning the answer to this. Now, there are primarily three different positions. You could make, you could say there are four, but I think primarily three different positions, at least three that I'm going to comment on, each, by the way, held by sincere, godly Christians. But before presenting these views, I need to remind you of something because this connects with all the views in some way. I just want to remind you of what we find in Daniel's prophecy, especially in Daniel chapter 9. It's prophesied that there will be a seven-year period. It's known as the 70th week, a week of years, seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, this future time period that immediately precedes Jesus' second coming, that aspect of the parousia, the coming, when He does literally touch down on earth in power and glory. Keep that 70th week of Daniel in mind. Depending on your view, all or part of that seven-year period is a time of tribulation, a time of judgment, when God's wrath is poured out on an unbelieving world. So, with this reminder of this future seven-year period, here is a very brief, and please catch this, intentionally incomplete summary of the three views. If I don't give that disclaimer, I'll get emails about that as well. (laughs) But you didn't mention this. You didn't mention that. You didn't give the full view. No, I'm not. I'm mainly just discussing them from the standpoint of timing. All these views have more details to them. First view, the pre-tribulational view. The pre-tribulational view. This view, as some hold, sees the entire seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, sees the entire period as being the time of tribulation. It has a first half and a second half, but the entire year is tribulation, tribulation, seven years. And this view says that the rapture then occurs at the front end, before the seven-year period begins, which saves the church from experiencing any of those seven years. Once that rapture occurs, the church is in heaven with Christ, as I said, while the seven-year tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, takes place on earth. Then, when the Lord returns to earth in power and glory, the church comes with Him to enjoy reigning with Him in His earthly kingdom and even beyond. This view, therefore, insists on a clear distinction between the front end and the end, a distinction between the rapture of the church and the return of the Lord to earth in open glory. There's a distinction between those two events, and this view holds that the rapture is the next great prophetic event, that there's nothing in prophecy left to be fulfilled until it, and therefore it can be considered always to be imminent, and that believers should expectantly look for it. The pre-tribulational view. The pre-wrath view is the second view I will address in an incomplete way there are some aspects of this view that are actually the same and, and correspond to the preacher view. There's agreement on, on some things, certainly as far as the data in 1 Thessalonians goes, both would preach that, and also agreement on the idea that the cons- church will not go through the tribulation. There's agreement on that. The difference is, based upon how this view might define the Seventieth week differently, how tribulation is defined a little differently, the day of the Lord differently as well, but the pre-wrath view holds that the seals in the book of Revelation, which we studied, as you know, on Wednesday nights and completed that study, the seals in the book of Revelation are not to be considered part of God's wrath. Therefore, they're not technically part of tribulation the seals. Therefore, in this view, not all of Daniel's 70th week is considered a time of wrath or tribulation. Instead, God's wrath, the tribulation, does not begin until all seven seals are broken and the scroll is opened. Therefore, when it comes to timing, which is the main point of all this today, this view holds that the rapture occurs between the sixth and seventh seals that are discussed in the book of Revelation, since only what happens from that point on, the trumpets and the bowls, since only that part should be considered the wrath of God, the eschatological wrath of God. So, in summary, according to this view, the rapture happens at some unknown day, an hour, so there would be a correspondence there to the pre-trib view. The church is safe from God's wrath, that corresponds, but according to this view, the rapture then happens between the middle of the 70th week of Daniel and the end. Somewhere in there is when the sixth and seventh seals occur and the trumpet and bold judgments occur, pre-wrath view. Number three, the post-tribulational view. This view holds that the church will remain on earth throughout the seven-year period, and they would call it the tribulation period, I think. I mean, some would. And the church will then be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, as we've been discussing, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, as Jesus comes from heaven and will immediately continue that descent down to earth. So while on one hand, this view accepts that the rapture and the second coming are technically different events... On the other hand, this view sees no appreciable time interval between them, and in effect effect does fuse them into one occurrence, with the raptured saints going up, but then immediately coming right back down. Now, our church has historically held to the pre-tribulational view, and it's the view that I personally hold listen carefully to this. The fact is, Scripture does not explicitly state the chronological relationship of the rapture to the tribulation, and therefore does not explicitly present one of these views. The view one accepts will be determined by doctrinal presuppositions Exegetical presuppositions, an exegetical approach, doctrinal reasonings that all help connect the dots the best you can. So historically, for our church, the pre-trib rapture view has done that. It's in harmony with our understanding of prophecy in general, our views concerning biblical interpretation, the implications of Old Testament prophecy and how the 70th week of Daniel and tribulation is defined in the day of the Lord. It's in harmony with these epistles, the book of Revelation, as they relate to this discussion, though not every individual in this church holds that view. Now, perhaps the best thing for me to do is to lay out just some of the issues that enter in that I would believe, I would say, it should be considered, if you're going to land on a view of the timing of the rapture, these are the kinds of issues that you would need to consider. Now, this can get very tedious, very technical. I certainly don't mean for it to be that. So, just listen if you want. And at the end, I do want to conclude with some observations that I believe we can take home with us from all this. But at least plug this in to your, the forming of your view. First of all, the teaching we do find in Thessalonians. Let's just start there. Plug this in, what's said in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, that those believers were waiting expectantly for the return of Christ. They were known for that. So the clear implication from my perspective is that they had hope of His return. Hope of His imminent return. Yet, if they had been taught something different about the tribulation, that the tribulation in whole or in part must first run its course, it's difficult to see how they could be described as expectantly waiting Christ's return. They would rather be described as bracing themselves and preparing themselves for tribulation. But they're not described that way. The passage we're in now, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Paul assured his converts that those believers who had died would share equally with the living in the rapture. That was his answer to their grief and their sorrow. But if they had been taught along the way that the church must go through God's wrath and God's tribulation, however you define the timing of the tribulation, the logical reaction for them would not to be sorrowing, they would have been rejoicing that those loved ones had escaped the great period of suffering. They wouldn't be grieving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 is coming up. This section is gone to appeal for appropriate conduct on the part of God's people. Paul appealed to that on the part of the readers. In view of the coming day of the Lord, he mentions... If it's recognized that this term denotes a prophetic period that begins with the rapture but also includes Christ's return in glory at the end of Daniel's 70th week, this passage clearly offers no proof that the church must pass through the tribulation in whole or in part. There's just no proof of it there. However, the entire paragraph does appeal to the readers to live a godly life, but not because they were... Being prepared to face tribulation and wrath, but because God's purpose was not wrath, but salvation, and out of the motive of that, live a godly life. And 2 Thessalonians, the Lord allows us to get to that book, chapter 1, verses 3 to 10, the readers are commended there for their growing faith and their growing love. And they're assured there in 2 Thessalonians 1 that because of this attitude, their praiseworthy attitude amid all the suffering they were presently going through and the present persecution, they were assured that they would be given rest. Their persecutors would face judgment, severe punishment, but they would be given rest. But if the church must pass through wrath, tribulation, then Paul should have warned them about that about that there was still more intense suffering laying ahead. If you think you're suffering now, just wait. He doesn't. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 12 has been used at times to make the case that the rapture should not be considered as imminent because certain events related to the day of the Lord are mentioned in this passage that first must first take place. But I think The real issue is why Paul was instructing him that way. It was because the Thessalonians had received erroneous teaching. They had been told the erroneous idea that the day of the Lord had begun. Therefore, they were urged in the interest of their hope in the rapture to not be shaken by that teaching. Don't listen to that. Besides, it it hasn't started Paul was simply assuring them that the prophetic day of the Lord could not yet be running its course because there are two events that must be fulfilled. And his point was that the predicted day of the Lord was still future. That's the overall point, which means that the idea that they were already in that day was inconsistent with their hope of being gathered up to him at the rapture. The point of all that is Paul's instructions to to the Thessalonians certainly supports a view of the rapture where the church does not experience any judgment or wrath, that they're taken out before any judgment or wrath. Thessalonians supports a view like that. Here's something else, the description of the earthly kingdom that's still in the future. Now, when you study the book of Revelation, chapter 6 all the way through 18, there's something interesting about... What is not mentioned directly in any of those chapters. So, admittedly, I'm talking about an argument from silence here. Sometimes silence can be very loud. In chapters 6 through 18, there is no direct mention of the church and the term church. I say that because of how different that is than Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Very intentionally, the Greek word for church is used 19 times in those chapters. I think it's reasonable to assume, some would disagree, but I think it's reasonable to assume that if the church were on earth, still, rather than in heaven, for any part of that 70th week, as laid out in the chapter 6 through 18, the word church would occur sometime, even frequently. But it is not the case. It is, from my perspective, a deafening silence Therefore, it is reasonable to view, it's a reasonable view, I should say, to assume that the church is not present during any of that, that the church has been removed, relocated by means of the rapture. At least you've got to deal with that issue in your view. Here's something else the lack of warnings about tribulation and wrath. The New Testament does not clearly warn church age believers of impending tribulation, or wrath, such as is experienced during Daniel's 70th week. Yet it does warn us of, ever, uh, of a lot of other things. It warns us of error. Be aware of the error that's passing around. Be aware of false prophets. You should be warned about that. There are warnings against ungodly living. There's warnings about present persecution and tribulation and suffering. It's just strange that the New Testament would be so silent when it comes to warnings concerning such a traumatic change as Daniel's 70th week. Here's something else to plug in, Jesus' own teachings. Now, I mentioned one, John 14, plug that in. But also this, the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. That parable portrays, just at the big picture level, the removing of unbelievers from among believers in order to judge those unbelievers. That's going to happen at the second coming. That aspect of Jesus' parousia, when He comes in power and glory, there's going to be that separation of believers, unbelievers from the believers. But the rapture is the opposite of that. He takes believers out from among the unbelievers. That's also true, by the way, of the parable of the dragnet that's in Matthew 13 as well. It's also true of the discussion of the days of Noah and the description of of the nation's judgment in the Olivet Discourse. Just plug it in. Deal with this as well, the statement that's made in Revelation 3.10. In Revelation 3.10, there is a phrase there, Depending on your translation, it says something like this, where Christ promises, I will keep you from the hour of testing. And literally, it means, I will prevent you from entering the hour of testing. That's pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to honor the church by rapturing it. It's, he's going to prevent it from entering the hour of testing during this 70th week of Daniel. So it makes sense that the rapture being caught up certainly is going to happen before wrath happens. I'm just saying when you examine these and other related issues in the text, you'll find little to no support for the post-trib view. And there are many other points I could make against the post-trib view. Time will not allow that. I think a quick bullet point list will have to suffice bullet points like this. If you just study the sequence of events, and I don't have time to lay them out again, the sequence of events associated with Christ coming to the earth following the tribulation, it does not fit the post-trib view. Something else, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about a resurrection. Revelation 20 talks about a different resurrection. There are two different resurrections being discussed there post-trib view says there's only one resurrection. That's not supported by those two passages. Something else, there's no mention of judgment in any of the rapture passages, so it's reasonable to conclude that the rapture occurs at a time before judgment. In Revelation 19, the chapter that clearly spells out the Lord's second coming, there's no mention of the rapture in things like resurrection of dead bodies of believers something else, if God raptures and glorifies all believers just prior to the inauguration of the earthly millennial kingdom, which is what the post-trib view demands, that does mean that there are no believers left to populate and propagate the earthly kingdom of Christ that is promised to Israel, which is something we hold to here at our church. It's Revelation chapter 20. But God does continue to save people during the future seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. God is going to save people during that seven-year period. That precedes the Lord's return to earth. And those saved people, which is going to include a large number of Jews, Israel's remnant, they will enter the millennial kingdom in earthly form. The rapture must take place before the end of the tribulation, and it does during the interval between the rapture and the actual second coming, there's other events that Scripture talks about, the believer's judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, a post-trib rapture leaves no time for that. Here's the bottom line on the post-trib view. A post-trib rapture actually ends up rendering the rapture itself to be inconsequential. If God preserves the church through this time of wrath and tribulation, however you define that time, then why or have a rapture at all? It doesn't make even sense to have one. It makes no sense to rapture believers from earth to heaven with no apparent purpose than just to return immediately. So if you got lost in all that, just hear this summary of the summary. Poster view has very little to support it. Pre-wrath view has much more to support it. But personally, I believe the pre-trib view best satisfies all the factors, Old Testament prophecy, teaching of Jesus, including the Olivet Discourse, the teaching of Paul and his letters to the Thessalonians, the regular revelation, and so forth. To say it differently, and I say this because of what some out there believe generated the pre-trib view, there are biblical reasons for taking a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. This view is not based upon best-selling books by Hal Lindsey. Okay? Now, I do want to end with some concluding observations. There are five of them about all of this. Observation number one, caution is necessary this is what you take home today. Caution is necessary. We must accept the fact and we must remember the fact that equally devout, already said it, but I'm saying it again, equally devout and sincere Christians will continue to hold, will continue to hold differing views on the timing of the rapture. So, how should we handle that reality? Well, primarily this Advocates of their respective views must avoid disunity, must avoid attributing unworthy motives or insincerity and exegesis to to other people just because they don't agree on this issue of the timing of the rapture. Plus, the fact is, though various teachers may disagree on this one issue, actually there's much in eschatology that we all do agree on. I believe that's what we should focus on. Craig Blazing articulates this well. There is so much on which we do agree. Christ is coming again. He's coming to rule on the earth. There will be a resurrection of the dead in Christ and a translation of those who are alive at His coming. And we will reign with Him, not just for a millennium, but forever forever. We have a living hope in the resurrection of Christ from the dead and a secure inheritance kept for us in heaven, coming with him when he comes. And then he adds this very transparently. We are not prophets. We're just servants of Christ trying to be faithful in understanding the Scripture. So, let's just admit that Scripture does not directly set forth the timing of the rapture and that the timing of the rapture is not, I hope you're sitting down, the timing of the rapture is not even the most important doctrine. Now, it's fine to study it. It's fine to be diligent in efforts to settle it for yourself and look for evidence of the chronology of the end-time events and all that kind of stuff, but those efforts must not be allowed to to lead to some preoccupation with uncertain details so that we lose sight of the sanctifying purpose of meditating on the future. Our study of God's Word is for the purpose of serving Him more faithfully for the purpose of living a more godly life and holy life is for the purpose of gaining a more reliable knowledge of the hope that we do have in Christ. So the bottom line is this, the benefit of understanding the rapture or anything about it is not to fill the gaps in your eschatological scheme. I like what the commentator Green said and he was making the comment just about 1 Thessalonians. He said, this is not the stuff of speculative prophecy or bestsellers on the end times. This text is to be located at the funeral home, the memorial service, and the graveside. It is placed in the hands of each believer to comfort others in their time of greatest sorrow. And I'll share something with you. That is why our doctrinal statement here at Twin City says so little, if you read it, it says so little about the particulars of the rapture. And that approach on our part has been intentional. So there's observation number one, caution is necessary. Observation number two, knowledge of the future brings comfort in the present. Knowledge of the future brings comfort in the present. In other words, we think about the future and study the future, ponder what Scripture says about it, not just to live in the future, and and not just so we know that we are going to share in Christ's glory, but knowing that in the future we will share in Christ's glory is encouragement that can help us when we're going through hard times now. In other words, the trials we face now are only part of now, the only part of this world, and they'll eventually pass away. This fits with the fact that Scripture never tells us that everything in our lives is going to work out now. Scripture never promises us success or that we'll be winners now or perfect health or prosperity with everything going smoothly, you know, in a carefree present life. There's no promise of that in Scripture Instead, we find Scripture admitting to the problems of the present life on earth. But yet, at the same time, it does point us ahead so that we can be encouraged with verses like 2 Corinthians 4.17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And see, my concern is if we're hung up on the timing of the rapture, We're not going to notice that kind of encouragement, and we'll miss it. Knowledge of the future brings comfort in the present. Observation number three, we should long for this future day. I believe the example of Paul is an example of expectancy. And I believe that's the example left for the church of the entire church age. So there's really a test of discipleship here, if you think about it. The person who does not rejoice at being forever with the Lord should examine his or her faith. Observation number four balance is necessary to avoid extremes. Balance is necessary to avoid extremes. Now, Paul lived in what's called the Messianic Age. Why is it called that? Because it's the age, it's the period between Christ's first coming to earth and everything about his future coming. That messianic age. Guess what age we live in? Same one the church age. It's the last days of human history, this age. And there's something else we're like Paul in. He didn't know for certain how long this age would last. He hoped it would be short, and as he got toward the end of his life, he realized it was still going, and he was probably going to die. Like him, we don't know how long this age will last. So let's avoid the same two extremes that he avoided, related to the Lord's return. One extreme, don't get involved in date setting. Avoid that. The other extreme, don't push the return of Christ into the distant undefined future as if it really couldn't happen in our lifetime. Don't do that either. Balance is necessary. And observation number five, the end is not to be dreaded. The end is not to be dreaded. Now, there's two possibilities for us related to the end, right? We can either die before the rapture or we'll be alive at it. Either way, You know what the end result will be? Everything we've longed for. All that the Lord has designed for us because we'll be with Him. Again, keep in mind the truth about this world. This world was never meant to fulfill us. But it's so easy to live our lives forgetting that fact and to try to grab all the enjoyment and pleasure we can of this life before it's over. This world was never meant to fulfill us. So let me leave you with an example of someone, I think, who didn't forget that. Someone who understood it. Someone who lived with the right perspective about the end, even if it means their death. I was reading this past week about the death of D.L. Moody. I may not agree with everything about him, but I found this. This is great. When he was dying his daughter, Emma, came to visit, and she did what you'd expect. She began to pray for him that her father would recover. And Moody heard her and stopped her and said this, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it. May we live with that same longing. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us to apply these truths the right way. Thank you for the glimpse of the future that you chose to give us. A victory in the end, and the Lord's return, and all the blessing that will be for his people. May it be an encouragement to us in our times of trials now, but help us to be balanced. Help us to be focused on the right things. And Lord, help us to guard the unity in our church. Lord, strengthen us for the trials we do face now. Encourage us with thoughts about the future in our presence with you. Encourage us with thoughts about the reunion we're going to enjoy with all those who have gone before us. Encourage us with the thought of just being in your presence. I do pray for anyone here who really is not prepared to see Jesus. I pray you would open their hearts to put their trust and faith in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins so that they might have the assurance that they can experience the joy of his return. In our Savior's name, amen.